Good morning. My name is Nick Swan, the associate pastor here at Grace. And we are going to be continuing our series on the Ten Commandments this morning, focusing on the Eighth Commandment, You Shall Not Steal. The title of our message this morning is Living or Learning to Live by Grace, You Shall Not Steal. Let me pray for us before we get started. Father, I pray that by your Spirit, we would be a people that are humbled by the truth that all that we are and all that we have is from your hand. We have absolutely no good apart from you. Use our lives in any way that you see fit to bring glory to you. And may we realize that this brings us both freedom and joy. I ask these things in Christ's name. Amen. There's a sculpture on the campus of the University of North Carolina, Charlotte. And this sculpture is of a man who from the waist up looks like a Greek god and from the waist down is still an unformed piece of stone. It's been uncut by hammer and chisel. And you have this man from the torso up who is holding this anvil above his head and a chisel to his left thigh which is not yet been formed and he is prepared to continue to strike in order to form himself. The image is entitled The Self-Made Man, that he has chiseled himself out of stone. This man is still emerging, he's still shaping himself. He's brought himself into existence and he alone is responsible for who he is and who he will ultimately become. But God's word paints a different picture. God's word tells us that we, all that we are and all that we have are from God's hand and are a work of God's grace. Therefore, if all we are and all that we have are ultimately a gift of God's grace in our lives, then all that we are and all that we have are at God's disposal. And here's why this is important. If we embrace the narrative of our culture, the narrative of the sculpture of the self-made man, we place ourselves at the center of our own universe, the center of our own story. If this is true, if we are at the center, then all that we are and all that we have are the fruit of our labors. They are what we have done for ourselves, not of God's grace. When we are at the center of our story, we begin to believe that we are therefore free to dispose of our resources, our time, our talent, and our treasure as we see fit according to what pleases us. And if this is our posture, we are robbing God because we are using our lives which belong to God, not as God sees fit, but as we see fit, disposing of the life that God has given us, not according to what he says, but according to what we want. And if we're willing to rob God in this way, it's of little or no consequence for us to begin robbing others of what God has given them. When we are at the center of our own universe, we become the sovereigns of our own lives. We are the kings and queens of our own universe. And as the kings and queens of old used to cry, what's mine is mine and what's yours is mine. Not only am I free to dispose of what God has given me, I'm free to dispose of what God has also given you. I'm, a, you, I'm able to use you according to my own self-interest. I am free to dispose of your belongings, who you are, as I see fit. In short, this is the heart of a thief. 
And it's this heart of a thief that leads us to disobey this morning's commandment, which is Exodus 20:15, you shall not steal. Point number one this morning is the myth of the self-made man. The myth of the self-made man. At the heart of mankind is this sinful belief that we are capable and are our own saviors. We are the sum of our own choices. We have the freedom and the responsibility to make of our lives what we can. And those who succeed are those who have worked the hardest and made the most of their talents and abilities. Now the flip side of this idea is that if we fail in life, this too rests upon us. And we in America, we've added to this default setting of mankind by enshrining these ideals in our American culture. This image of rugged individualism. You are what you make of yourself. These ideals which do have some truth in them are so ingrained in us that we believe them without even really examining or thinking much about them. But the gospel doesn't leave these ideals, this culture, this idea unexamined, no matter how ingrained they may be in us. Because at the heart of the gospel is God's provision of salvation as a gift of grace to those who do not deserve it and were unable of earning it themselves. It's by God's grace that we have been saved through faith in this, not of ourselves, not according to works, so that no one may boast, Ephesians 2. The grace that is at the center of the gospel, it flies in the face of the myth of the self-made man. The gospel does call us to responsible living. It does call us to steward well our time and our talent and our treasure that God has entrusted to us. But it also reminds us daily... That what we have has been entrusted to us. In other words, all that we have is a gift from God. We see this illustrated in the people of Israel throughout the Old Testament. That God's gift of salvation is a gift. And this story of redemption, it, it, it permeates the whole Old Testament. It's the people to whom the law of the Ten Commandments, which we are studying, was given. Starts in Genesis 12. God made this promise to Abraham. I'm going to make you into a great nation, a people. I'm going to give you a land and then I'm going to bless you. And through you all the nations of the earth are going to be blessed. But consider the man to whom these promises were given. Abraham was an idolater in Ur of the Chaldeans. He didn't earn anything. God in his mercy came to Abraham and made promises that he did not deserve. And everything that came to Abraham was a gift of God's grace. Abraham's descendants then grow into a great nation and they find themselves enslaved in the land of Egypt. And it was God who brought them out of their slavery through ten plagues and through the Red Sea. And then as they are wandering in the wilderness, he provided for all of their needs, clothes that never wore out, manna from heaven, water from the rocks. God gave them everything that they needed. Everything they had was a gift from his hand. That's why the Ten Commandments start with this reminder that all of our obedience flows from a free gift of God's grace. And God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God then brought his people through the wilderness. He defeated all their enemies and then he gave them possession of the promised land. But knowing the heart of mankind, before they entered the promised land, God wanted to give them a warning, a promise... That once they got into the land, it was going to be easy for them to forget that all that they had was a gift from his hand. 
And so he says this to them in Deuteronomy 6, which is also in your bulletin. Deuteronomy 6, 10 to 12. Look there with me. And when the Lord your God brings you into the land that he swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob to give you, with great and good cities that you did not build, and houses full of all good things that you did not fill, and cisterns that you did not dig, and vineyards and olive trees that you did not plant. And when you eat and are full, then take care. Lest you forget the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Are the Israelites called to steward all that God has entrusted them? Absolutely. But while doing so, they are never to forget that all that they have is a gift. One that they did not deserve and never could have earned on their own. It is all a a measure of God's free grace given to them. From Abraham to deliverance from Egypt, through the wilderness to possession of the land, all are a gift from God. Friends, we are no more the authors of our own success than the Israelites were of theirs. There isn't a self-made man or a self-made woman in this room this morning. All that we have And all that we are are a gift of God's free grace given to us through Jesus Christ. It's for this reason that Paul says to the Corinthians and to us in 1 Corinthians 4, 7. For who sees anything different in you and in me? What do we have that we have not received? And if then we have received it, why do we boast as if we did not receive it? Then Paul applies these same truths to himself later in this same letter where he says to himself about himself, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, though it was not I, but the grace of God that is with me. Yes, Paul stewarded his gifts well. He worked harder than any of them, but he never forgot that it was only by God's grace that he is who he is or was who he was. He never forgot that he was working with inherited capital, with inherited wealth. Everything he had was from God. From God, through God, and to God. The challenge for us is that just like the Israelites, we are prone to forget. We forget that all that we have, all the blessings that we have are from God. We therefore become puffed up, impressed with ourselves. And when we do so, we place ourselves at the center of our own universe. And we begin to use our resources as we see fit. And then it quickly follows that we begin to use other resources as we see fit. Seeing them as placed in this world, not for us to serve them, but for them to serve us. And so we steal. We take what doesn't belong to us and we use it for ourselves. This leads to point number two, greedy for gain. Greedy for gain. Greed is defined in the dictionary as an intense and selfish desire for something, especially wealth or power. You see, time, talent, and treasure, they are all finite resources. And in the game of life, as the world portrays it, the more time that you have, the more talent that you have, and the more treasure that you accumulate will be the means through which you will acquire happiness, security, and power. Greed leads us to treat others' time, talent, and treasure as resources for us to obtain and to use for our own purposes. 
And if others stand in the way of this acquisition, we take it from them. So what might this look like? In some cases, it's straight up theft. We just steal. We cheat on our taxes so that we can pay less. We turn in inflated expense reports so that we can get more from our employers. We bill others for hours that we didn't work. We use dishonest business practices to extract wealth from others. Some of our youth like to steal from the candy stores in the West Hall and in the basement and from the refrigerators downstairs. Siblings take from their brothers and their sisters. College students, and some of you probably aren't here, but college, we used to pilfer from one another's food in the cabinets. I'm sure there are college students that maybe do that. Maybe they don't do that anymore. I used to steal from my roommates. They always had the double-stuffed Oreos, and I liked them. Now, we often justify these actions by telling ourselves, everyone does this. You know, what's, what's the big deal? It isn't that much what I'm taking. No one will even know that it's gone. They do it to me, therefore it's okay for me to do it to them. This is just how business is done. But at the end of the day, what we are doing is stealing. Taking resources God has entrusted to others and using them for our own purposes. Beyond outright theft, there's also a tendency within us to squeeze every last drop out of other people. We all want to get the best deal. We don't want anyone to get more out of us than we can get out of them. So we squeeze every interaction and we extract as much out of others as we can. In business, we angle, we cajole, we manipulate, we even lie in order to get the best deal. To squeeze out just a little more margin, all in the name of shareholder value and greater profits and possibly better bonuses for ourselves. We spend a great deal of effort extracting every last drop of value. We may do this because of the sense of power that it gives us. We may do, do so because it gives us a greater sense of financial security to accumulate more for ourselves. Or just for the thrill of competition. We love to win and to win at all costs. But when we squeeze others in this way, what we are actually doing... It's transforming others into commodities that we can use for our own gain. We can also see this desire to extract from others and how we treat those who serve us. Often we push those who serve us to give us what we want, when we want it, at the price that we want, and maybe a little extra if we can get it out of them. And we can often do so in dehumanizing ways. As though the people preparing our food or washing our children or mowing our lawns or delivering our packages or remodeling our kitchens are simply there to serve us with little regard for their personhood and human dignity. Friends, it's not wrong to hire others to help us. It's about how we treat them in the process. Are they people that we see and care about or are they providers of goods and services whose humanity has functionally become invisible to us? Now we often excuse these types of behaviors in our businesses and in our homes under the guise of good stewardship. It's a fiduciary responsibility to steward the resources of our company and our homes as best we can. 
And there are times when this is absolutely true, where we need to think about how we steward our resources. But there are also times when we approach this in such a way that we actually turn the biblical understanding of stewardship on its head. You see, stewardship isn't just about us stewarding all that God has given us. It's about stewarding what God has given us in a way that honors those around us who are also called to steward all that God has given them. Fellow human beings aren't goods and services. They aren't transactions we are free to manipulate in our favor. They are image bearers of God. Image bearers of God to whom God has given time, talent, and treasure that they are called to steward to God's glory just as we are. When we fail to see all that God, that all that we have is from God, do you know what else we also forget? We also forget that all that everyone else has around us is also from God. And so therefore to steal from them, to squeeze from them, to extract from them, isn't simply to steal from them, it is to steal from God. Because everything they have, God has given them, just as everything we have, God has given us. The last way in which we are often greedy for gain is our temptation to squander gifts that God has given us. We see this in how we steward our time, our talent, and our treasure. If all that we are and all that we have belong to God, we are called to use these resources that have been given to us in ways that bring honor to him and express love to our neighbors. When we misappropriate God's resources, we are robbing God and all those who would benefit from a right appropriation of those resources. First one is time. How do you use your time? Do you view your time as your time or God's time? At our men's Bible study this week, I told the guys that I have certain slices of my time that I clearly view as God's time. And then I have other slices of my time that I clearly view as my own. When I'm at work, it's easy for me to delineate. This is God's time. It belongs to God. It's, it's clearly delineated. I am compensated for this. I'm responsible to steward the time well because I'm being paid. You all are giving generously so that I can work for all of you in service to the church and the mission. And I'm re- I understand that I'm responsible for how I use that time. It doesn't belong to me. We all instinctively get this. You can't play solitaire for eight hours a day and not think you aren't stealing from your employer. We get this. You can't do this. It's stealing. But here's the thing for me. When I go home, I have a completely different perspective on my time. When I get home, well, that's, that's my time. I put in my work time. I, I did what God asked me to do in the workplace. But when I get home, that's, that's me. That's my time. But God doesn't just want my work time. He wants all of my time. Now, this doesn't mean that I can't rest or engage in leisure. I'm free to do so. In fact, God calls me to do so. What I'm not free to do, however, is selfishly view non-work hours as mine. Because what that leads me to do is to rob God and others of that time. The time where I could be investing in my family, investing in relationships, investing in our community, cultivating my mind and my body. If all that I am and all that I have is from God, I'm not free to rob God of my time and use it however I want. So how are you using your time? How are you using your talents? Do you view them as your own? These talents are mine. Mine I've worked hard, I've acquired them, I've sharpened them, I'm now free to use them as I see 
fit? Or do you see them as a gift from God given to you to use in service to God and in service to others? Are your talents only for your profit or are they for the profit of God and others? How are you using your treasure? In this question, I'm not talking about generosity. That was last week's message. I'm talking about how we spend our disposable income. Do you spend frivolously or extravagantly? What's the litmus test for how much you are willing to spend on something? Is it simply, if I can afford it, then I will spend it? Is the heart attitude, I earned it, therefore I can do with it what I want? Asking these questions doesn't mean you should feel guilty for buying a nicer car or nicer clothes or taking a more expensive vacation. Owning a Toyota is not more virtuous than owning a Tesla. That's not what this is about. It's about our hearts. It's about what God wants from us. He wants us to pause and to reframe how we view our resources. He wants to remind us that all that we have and all that we are are His. And when we do so, God will, by his spirit, begin to reorient, recalibrate, reappropriate our time and our talent and our treasure. Not in service to ourselves, but in service to God and others. God wants us to reorient our hearts. He wants to place himself in the frame that God is above us and that he's given all of his image bearers time, talent, and treasure. And we are called to use those gifts in service to him and in service to one another. We are not free to use them as we see fit. We're not free to steal from others or extract from others. Instead, he wants us to turn outward in service to him and in service to those around us. He wants us to embrace the heart of Christ, which is demonstrated to us And our final point briefly, point number three, the self-giving love of God. Look with me in your bulletin, 2 Corinthians 8, verse 9. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. You see, God wants us to know the joy of giving all that we are and all that we have in service to him. Christ, who had everything, became poor for us. He used all of his life in service to his Father and in service to us. And it was because of the joy set before him, the joy of our salvation, that he endured the suffering of the cross. He was willing to give all of himself because he knew and he believed it is more blessed, more joyful, more satisfying to, to give than it is to receive. And it's through the gift of himself that we have received Salvation. And as part of this gift of salvation is all of the freedom that salvation offers. Jesus offers us the freedom. The freedom from the love of money. Freedom from selfishness. Freedom from greed. He wants to free us from the sin of stealing because he knows that no matter how much we take... ...we will never actually receive the satisfaction that we're pursuing... He also knows that the true satisfaction, the one that we are longing for, that we will only receive it when we give all of ourselves to him and to others. I'll leave you with these final words from 1 Timothy 6, which is also in your bulletin. As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God, who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. They are to do good 
to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasures for themselves as a good foundation for the future, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Friends, we have the wonderful opportunity to be freed from the false promises of this world. The false promises of this world that tell us the more we have, the happier we will be. The more that we have, the more secure and the more peace we will have. We have the opportunity to turn all of these false promises over to Christ and to turn to Christ who calls us to empty ourselves, giving all of ourselves in love to God and to others. And it's then in loving him and others that we will be truly rich, rich in good works, rich in the joy of sharing with others, rich in reward in heaven. In the upside down and the inside out world of the gospel, it's only in dying to these false promises that the more we have, the happier will we be. When we die to these promises and realize the more that we give, the happier we will be, that we will truly take hold of that which is truly life. Let me pray for us. Father, what a convicting message to preach. Father, how easy it is for me and for I know many of the people here to believe that the more we have, the happier we will be. And Father, it leads us to extract things from other people, your, your children, your image bearers, and to use them for our own benefit because we think we'll be happy. Father, free us. Help us to remember what Christ has done. That it's not in gaining worldly riches that we find we are truly rich. It's in giving it all away and clinging to Christ that we will find true life and true happiness. May this be true of us, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.